Welcome to the 49th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is 3X Growth, How a Pivot from Independent Broker-Dealer to RIA Turned Into a Nearly $4 Billion Slam Dunk. It's a conversation with Rob Nelson, CEO and founding partner of North Rock Partners. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other podcast resources. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. While it seems that we hear most about breakaways from the brokerage world, there are plenty of other advisors who traveled a different path to independence. My guest on today's show started in the wealth management world at an independent broker-dealer. He outgrew the model, and as an RIA, extraordinary growth has continued with the ability to do so much more than he could under an independent broker-dealer umbrella. Rob Nelson, founding partner and CEO of Minneapolis-based North Rock Partners, shares how his business serving high-net-worth clients, many of whom are professional athletes, has evolved over the years and continues to do so at a record pace. The firm made news back in April of 2019 when it took on a capital partner, New York Private Bank and Trust Emigrant Partners. Then they made even bigger headlines in June when they recruited NBA All-Star Tony Parker, who recently retired from the San Antonio Spurs. And shortly after we recorded this interview, Northrock announced that they expanded their footprint into Chicago in a partnership with a team that shares their passion and commitment to the client experience. All that translates into incredible fast-paced growth, pushing Northrock's assets under management to just shy of $4 billion. In this episode, we'll talk about Rob's unique journey to the independent space, the role of a capital partner in a firm's growth, how that infusion will impact the firm's plans, this exciting high-profile hire, and much more. So let's jump right in. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here. It's an honor. I have a number of friends and colleagues that are listening to your show. And as I mentioned up front, I've been looking forward to this. Well, I'm grateful. So let's jump right in. Maybe start by telling us a little bit about your background. My background is from for myself. I'm our primary office is located in Minnesota, and, and that's really where I began. My hometown is a small farming community. It's called Ashby, about two and a half hours west of Minneapolis. I grew up there. Uh, graduated uh, high school. Uh, went to college in Bemidji, Minnesota, northern Minnesota and started in the industry in, in 1993, way back in the day with IDS Financial Services. 
for me and within this industry, I probably grew in a very similar way to most. I came into IDS under the approach of uh, training in the first year. Uh, they would provide leads, some guidance on how to acquire clients, but ultimately you were an independent contractor building your client base one client at a time. Back in 93, as I was coming into the industry, of course, I didn't even know what an independent contractor meant. So I quickly found out that meant self-employed, hiring your own staff, paying for your own technology, real estate, and so on, which was ended up, as I found out later, was a blessing to come into the business self-employed and, and building a business. But IDS, uh, over time, uh, became American Express, which ultimately became Ameriprise. When I started with IDS back in the day, Another kind of a really great benefit for me of coming into the industry back in 93 is they were just starting to focus on financial planning for a fee. So you would start in the business. Anytime you brought on a client, you had to bring on a client by what, unfortunately, they would say selling a financial plan. So you would have a client purchase a financial plan. You would do, provide them comprehensive advice. Probably back then, uh, the goal was to sell products from a company standpoint, but it immediately allowed me to have to get equipped and to learn the business around all aspects of financial advice. And that's how I jumped into it. I know we'll get into this in a little bit, but ultimately stayed with Ameriprise for my first 20 years. And then in 2013, we spun off of Ameriprise, became completely independent in the firm we are today, which is North Rock Partners, primarily located here in Minneapolis, but we have locations and offices and clients all throughout the country. Your story is an extraordinary one, first of all, and there's so many interesting parts to it. The the notion of starting out as an independent and then going from an independent broker-dealer to a hybrid RIA, and then we'll talk, we'll certainly get into the kind of growth you've had, but it's an incredibly interesting story. So let's talk a little bit now about North Rock Partners, your firm. What types of clients do you serve? How much in assets do you manage? Tell us a little bit about the makeup of your partners and your staff. Awesome. You know, for us, uh, we have a pretty diverse client base. Clients uh, over time, Probably not in a thoughtful way, but back in 93, 94, we started working with a handful of corporate leaders, probably taking a chance on a kid at that point. But we started working with corporate leaders and helping them with not only comprehensive advice and investment planning, ultimately started giving them advice on executive compensation, tax planning, employee benefits, and so on. We ended up continuing to get referred to corporate employees and corporate leaders over the next 20 years, and that, that's really continued to this day to be a core part of our business. Over the last 15 years, our client base has continued to become diverse through a concentration of professional athletes and leaders in professional sports, business owners and entrepreneurs, and our clients' family members, meaning we, we have about 350 to 400 clients that I would consider family members of our core clients, uh, children, parents, siblings, and so on, where we're continuing to build resources around them and having that be the value proposition for our clients. To, to your question on assets, uh, it's actually kind of our asset basis more than ever is really, a, I would say, a moving target. We're going through a really fast, quick growth period of time. We, we have about $1.5 billion of billable assets. We have about $2 billion of oversight. Clients are worth about $10 billion collectively overall, but right now we're going to really great growth where I could see us even a year from now being at 3.5 to 4.5 billion collectively as an entire organization. So today we have about 50 employees. We're adding 
probably four to five employees a month, I would anticipate for the next year. Again, same thing over the next year, I'd anticipate we'd be probably at 100 employees. And today I have eight partners that are helping me collectively lead the entire organization. So you talked to me also about how the North Rock value proposition includes what you described as a deep service offering. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. From my point, and I have, a, of course, a strong bias, I feel that we are one of the deepest providers in our industry, and that's what we've built up over time. You know, how we think about it when we talk to our existing clients or maybe even so, more so talking to a new client is if a new client's coming to us, we describe it as, in a sense, a personal office, meaning that we get to know the client, what they're good at, what they're not good at, what they need for resources, what they don't need for resources, and then our responsibility is to help to build all of the resources around the clients for us to help play a strong role in the client being their best self. And so a laundry list of things that we would typically do for a client, but examples of that would be is if we're working with a client, we're heavily involved in cash flow and banking, meaning that we're, we have 50 clients that we help to pay all of their bills. We have probably 75% of our clients are playing, paying some bills. The majority of our corporate leaders are directly and our athletes are directly depositing their paychecks with us. We provide them the right stream of income on a monthly basis. We do tax preparation, tax planning. We make all the tax payments on behalf of our clients. Insurance, we're heavily involved in life insurance, disability, long-term care. We now have uh, on-site property casualty specialists. And I would anticipate that over the next 12 months, we'll have a dedicated health insurance specialist as part of what we do for clients as well. Investments, we do custody everywhere. So when a client logs into our app or to our website, they're going to see every asset, every investment asset they have as of last night's close if we, can, if we have a direct data feed. So they're going to see their entire balance sheet. So their 401k to deferred compensation plans, cash balances, insurance cash values, whatever that ends up being. So we're going to collectively manage all assets. 99% of our clients, we have oversight of 99% of their investment assets. Executive compensation, we tend to run A to Z, meaning corporate compliance, blackouts, holding limits, helping clients exercise their stock options, restricted stock, their employer benefits, legal and estate planning. We're heavily involved in estate planning. We tend to run A to Z, not only helping the client form their estate plan, but then helping them go through the process to evaluate, determine the right estate plan, and then help them execute. And then we continue to monitor all charitable giving we run, not only just a donor advised fund, but we're going to run the foundation. And then we do a lot of work in non-traditional services, meaning that we're, I just got, I got done with a meeting today where I was helping a, an entrepreneur who was just an up and coming, uh, great client of ours, help to put together a people structure around him and his business as we move forward. You know, we're, we're helping clients with property management, travel services, hiring personal assistants, social media, PR. Some of our athletes are starting to ask us for support on putting together plans for health and wellness. So ultimately, as we move the business forward, as our clients come to us and they need help, they need resources, um, and they need advice, our role is to be at the center helping them with all aspects of their life, financial life, and beyond. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Most people would bucket sort of that deep service offering and call it family office services. And family office services has become somewhat, certainly a sexy, but a pretty ubiquitous term that a lot of firms use to describe their service model for their ultra-affluent clients. In many cases, it's not anything unique. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of things that really go above and beyond what a typical wealth advisor certainly would offer. So I guess my first question is, do you think that those are services that you ever could have offered under a broker-dealer like Ameriprise or any other independent broker-dealer? 
It's a great question and a tough question, but the answer is, is it would, no, it would have been incredibly difficult. You know, for my relationship with, with Ameriprise, you know, again, what ultimately started with IDS, I couldn't have had a stronger relationship. I just, I grew up at IDS, which became American Express and then Ameriprise, and I, I knew the leadership. I had hundreds of colleagues. I did a lot of training around the country at Ameriprise. The company provided me a lot of flexibility. And over time, uh, we were fortunate enough to have their most affluent client base across the company. But when it was all said and done, as our clients, especially our affluent clients, were coming to us for wanting a higher level of support, it was becoming really difficult under the current system, meaning that we weren't supposed to be giving direct advice on assets that weren't held at the company. You know, we weren't supposed to be giving specific advice on executive compensation. I was having a, a tremendous amount of time talking the company into allowing me to pay bills. So of course, you understand the, the risk reasons related to that. Many of our clients were asking us to be on a foundation board, which is discouraging in that industry. Clients were asking me to play a role as a trustee or an executor. And so clients, and, and just because they, we had earned the right to be at the center, we'd earned the right to be their trusted advisor, and you can't get a better compliment than that. And so as clients were asking us to evaluate a private equity offering or an investment or business opportunity that, that they were being approached on, our nature is to say, yes, you know, we have competency in this. We can help you with it. We want to help. We want to play a strong role in your life and improve our clients' lives. It was just a challenge in that environment. And, and, that, and that's kind of, there's a message there is it's, you know, on, on the same side is that on the RIA side, on the registered investment advisor side, it's not for everybody either, but for those and for, for us that were client focused and wanting to expand what we did for our clients, especially based on what our clients were asking for, it was really cumbersome for us to, to build that model in that world. The other point about it is that family office services historically was only available in the industry for mega billionaires. And today, one of the biggest reasons that we're seeing advisors going independent is because they want to be able to bring bill pay and concierge services and other sort of ancillary services available to not billionaires, but perhaps those with 10 million or 20 million or something of the sort. So wondering if that's part of your value proposition. In other words, what's the level of client, the asset level of a client that you provide it to? And how do you see that family office model evolving for your firm over the coming years? Yeah, as we expand those services, of course, we do segment services based on the client, not only the size, but the client need. And so having a common sense approach, because it's in our nature, you know, for 26 years now of just if a client has a need and, and it makes sense for us to want to deliver it, whether it financially makes sense or not. And so that's, you know, that's something is from a business challenge, you continue to navigate through. But most of the time, as we start to think about those non-traditional services, such as running a foundation or doing complete bill payment, I mean, where you're actually paying all of the client's bills, providing them cash flow reporting, being an administrator on a credit card, running all of their tax payments, running all of their tax planning, all of their legal contracts, and so on, you need to have not only a people structure, but there needs to be an economic model that works. So a lot of times, those types of services are clients that have $10 million or more. But at the same time, with us having a number of young athletes, and we, we've got a 
we got a client that's a Powerball winner. We have other other clients that have really come into great success through selling a business. You know, but uh, for those, you know, you got a rookie athlete that's coming into their first contract and they really haven't accumulated any money, but they have all the complexity of somebody that has $20 million. We see ourselves providing those services to those types of clients as well, even though they're just starting out financially in life. And then we just come to a different type of fee arrangement, but delivering the services is what makes sense for the client. On the part of the family office services and how we think about the future of the family office services, that's a fascinating part of the business because you kind of alluded to it already is I've been fortunate to be introduced to hundreds of leaders of family offices, but for those single family offices, it's very common uh, right now in our industry to meet somebody who's leading a single family office. You know, you got a, they got a family that's worth 500 million or a billion and you got two family members and one staff person running the family office and they're all over their head and they're really just scrambling. And you can see that look in their eyes when you're sitting across the table from them, how they're delivering upon what their role is within the firm. And so for us, the conversations we're having with a number of family offices right now is we see a family offices becoming our next client opportunity. Yeah. You know, finding those family offices that are looking for the depth that we do. We are one of the deepest providers in the industry, and we're going to continue to expand upon every service, not only in the U.S., but we're starting to do some more work uh, overseas as well. And the ability to be able to keep up with that and support an, an individual family office or a multifamily office is a role that we can see continuing to expand upon. And, and as that industry continues to change and as we continue to expand our service model, wanting to take advantage of it. Yeah, it's really First of all, brilliant strategy and incredibly exciting. Is there anything else besides the ability to really customize the service deliverable for these affluent clients that you wanted to be able to do that you found difficult to do under a broker-dealer umbrella? You know, under the broker-dealer umbrella, you do run into problems with some of the traditional, with some of the other traditional services of being able to provide lending at another bank that's held held away, you know, complete access to markets sometimes can be limited, uh, meaning that if, if there is an investment available through a Goldman Sachs platform and, and a client's asking you about it, you want to be able to provide that for them, especially if it makes sense in their financial scheme. And so you want to be able to do that. And then also just being able to expand on some of those traditional services. One of the things that we think about for ourselves is being able to having the flexibility to, for what's next is to be a corporate trustee and have a corporate trustee and build that type of structure around the clients as well. So yes, there's those traditional services that you would think about within the broker-dealer that are even providing limitations, but then it's also those ancillary services that uh, were a limitation as we were moving on to the future. Yeah. Let's shift gears for a minute to the capital partnership you formed this year with Emigrant Partners, actually in April of this year to be specific. So Emigrant, to give our listeners perspective, is a subsidiary of New York Private Bank and Trust, and it's a capital and advisory services partner that makes non-voting minority investments in the wealth management space. It's a firm run by Carl Heckenberg, who's its CEO, and Howard Milstein, the president and CEO of New York Private Bank and Trust. They are, in this industry, finance and industry rock stars, and making this deal even more interesting. And I'm actually thrilled to say that Lewis Diamond from our firm helped to facilitate it. I'd love to delve into your thoughts on that. So first and foremost, a lot of RIAs struggle with the idea of taking on a capital partner, giving up control, giving up equity, and when to do it. So can you share why you did so and what you were hoping to achieve? Well, the two obstacles you mentioned up front were uh, were 
our biggest caution on, on having the same type of relationships. I reserve the right to change my mind, but at this point in time in my career, I see myself doing this forever, and we know we have a unique value proposition, and I wanted to have that flexibility, the autonomy to grow it in the way that we that we saw fit. And so as we were looking at, at the possibility of having a capital partner, we had met with other companies over time, some of them not deliberately at an industry conference or maybe it's a, a solicitation through another colleague where the, a lot of the consolidators, the capital partner opportunities out there, they were looking to gain control or play a role in leading the firm. And it just didn't seem like the right fit for us. And for us, we're going through really great growth challenges. So we were continuing to know that we were going to aggressively grow over the next five and 10 years and hopefully forever. So we did continue to look at what was out there. And we had an introduction to Carl. And from our standpoint, some of it was timing, but it was just ultimately just having the right partner. I can't say enough good things about the relationship, even though we're still just getting going, of how well it's begun in working with New York Private Bank and Trust and Immigrant Partners because of from a number of things. One, I now have a partner that it's truly a partnership. It is a passive role. They, they have no objective of running our firm someday. It's a collaboration. A lot of the challenges that we run into, they've been there, done that. They've got amazing depth in their family office. Carl is just a great student of the industry. So as we started to think about what a partnership could look like, and then the opportunity for us to collaborate on growth, you know, they just wanted to have a role of helping us to grow. They were looking for growth capital as well, which awesome. We're looking to grow the business, and there's an opportunity for us to collaborate. So I've got a partner that has great industry knowledge. We have the ability to go side by side with them on some of the services that they're providing to their to the existing family, such as investment services or other types of aspects of their business. And then for us to jump into growth opportunities, they've got a amazing sports business. They're involved heavily in private equity, you know, venture capital. And so the ability for us to expand some of our services, some of the investments that we're doing for our existing clients, and then having a, a partner that has know-how about the industry and has the connections in the industry, there's just a combination of things that just felt really right for us at this point in time. And then again, having a capital partner that allowed us to more aggressively invest in the business than we otherwise would have been able to do on our own, it just all came together. Yeah, it makes sense. But how about the timing of it? How about why this was the right time to take on an investor versus 10 years ago or 10 years from now? Part was timing, part was just having the right partner. For us, we had reached critical mass. We were definitely providing, wanting to go uh, to provide services that were not traditional in our industry. And we were starting to look at location changes. So as we were thinking about, okay, do we need capital? First is just taking that step back. And then if we were to find the right partner, what would that look like? It just, there was a number of needs that we were looking for, not only just on pure capital, but also knowledge base and the ability to have a side-by-side partner. And so we know we wanted to expand our people. We know that we wanted to expand the, our presence around the country and we wanted to expand services and you start checking the boxes and then you start running economic models around it. And the volume was high. Like many of us in, in my industry, I just hired, you know, back 26 years ago, you just hired one employee at a time that you could afford, but now we're running into, wow, I want to expand into five services. We're looking to hire a dozen people and I'm looking to add a couple more locations than I otherwise would have. It just added up for us to look at finding the right capital partner. And had you ever thought about instead of taking on an equity partner, selling or merging the firm? Was that ever on your mind? Not selling. 
every day, every year, you continue to evaluate and reevaluate what you want to be when you grow up and what you want the firm to look like and feel like. And really because we, in a sense, look at our firm as a legacy firm. And what I mean by that is, one, is to continue to grow the firm and ultimately pass it on to the next generation, but also, in a sense, protect our current client's legacy, meaning I see myself and our firm supporting our current clients through the rest of their lives, but our clients are more and more entrusting us to implement their legacy. So, you know, we're taking care of the kids, we're taking care of them from a financial planning perspective, and we're helping the parents put together a thoughtful plan on an estate plan that's going to be implemented 20, 50, 70 years from now. They're looking for us to execute upon that. And so our role in continuing to think about it was, it wasn't at this current time where we were ever thinking about selling the business, but you know, the merger side is interesting. As we've gotten out in the industry, meeting a lot of other firms and some of them being like-minded, you know, the right merger opportunities come about. You can't be closed-minded to it, especially if it allows you to expand your services that you're doing above and beyond at a faster pace. So we have explored that, and we've actually merged a couple of practices into our business, and that's actually been really positive from not only adding what we're doing from a revenue perspective, but being able to hire two or three people sooner than we otherwise would. And so I would see that as a continued probably long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. All right. So now for the exciting question, I know you have a sports artist and entertainment division at Northrock and you recently, and this is the exciting part, recruited Tony Parker, all-star basketball player from the San Antonio Spurs. Can you tell us a little bit about that high-profile hire, why Tony, what his role is, what made Tony join the firm, et cetera? Tony was an introduction through one of our MBA owner clients. And when I met Tony for the first time, it was to grab coffee and have an introduction and just talk about the world. I knew that he was contemplating about what was next for him, but it just was an amazing first conversation. I quickly met a person that I enjoyed. He was probably one of the most well-prepared athletes that I had met, entrepreneurial. Now he's got a number of business interests. He owns a couple of professional basketball teams in Europe. He has a number of business interests that he's been working on over the last decade. I could tell he'd actually been planning out his retirement from the NBA since he probably started. And so as I started to talk to him about what he wanted, and he was talking about his future and thinking about what was next and above and beyond, and we started comparing notes. It just led into six, seven, eight, nine, ten, a dozen meetings from there of just continuing to get to know each other. I think we were both at the right spot at the right time. For us, we had built up critical mass, I would say, to go into the marketplace and become very deliberate on how we build our sports business, meaning we have 45 clients or more in professional sports, not only just players, we have leaders in the leagues, we have a couple of NBA owners as clients, and they're advocates, and they're asking, and they're continuing to refer people into it. And so as our players are starting to ask us for more, the opportunity for me to have a side-by-side partner that could help me and help us be thoughtful about what's our strategy going to be in the future to deliver upon what our clients are asking for was a fun opportunity. Tony is somebody that I can have within our firm as a partner, but you know, for him sitting across from a fellow player, he has a unique opportunity to not only coach them off the court, but also on the court. And our players are asking us for maybe even more than our corporate executives on the services that are non-traditional. So our athletes are asking us to help them develop services on PR, social media. As I mentioned, I have a couple of our athletes are asking us to play a role in helping them put together a plan on health and wellness. They're hiring staff. They're needing help on property management and technology support, travel support. And we want to get ahead of that. 
I want to continue to build around it. I want to have a full circle of resources, kind of that personal office approach for athletes. And there isn't anybody I can think of as a partner that could be help me and have a, such a strong role in the firm than Tony. And it just, I'm feeling incredibly grateful. Yeah. And exciting too. Do you think that hiring Tony and building out this sports arts and entertainment division is something you could have or would have done without the capital infusion from Emigrant? I would have. One of the things that Immigrant helps as part of the process is to, to get ahead of it a little bit more than we otherwise would have. I mentioned already with Immigrant of wanting to expand our service offering, especially for our affluent clients and locations, and that complements what I wanted to do on the sports side. Howard Milstein has a majority interest in Jack Nicholas Golf and wants to expand what they do in the golf world. What a fun opportunity for us to collaborate on. We already have a concentration of clients in New York and the opportunity for us to build our sports business as well in New York at the same time. There was an opportunity to partner with Immigrant on that as well. And so there's a number of things that are opportunities for, to, for us to collaborate on. Opportunities like with Tony and some of the growth that we've had would have probably happened independently. But now with Immigrant, I think it's just going to accelerate. So it sounds like aside from that, you're anticipating an exponential growth in the short term. I think you had said to me recently that you're expecting to double your asset base in the next 12 months. So how do you plan on doing that? Where does that come from? There are a few years that you come into a year like this where it's, you know, you come into, you're, you're doing your business planning in October, November, December, and you're thinking about what the year has ahead. And from my standpoint, I'm thinking, boy, we have these four, five, six, seven exciting opportunities. And then they all happen. That's not normal, but that's ultimately what we're experiencing right now is just amazing organic growth. Our clients are just coming into such fun success. And it's a really special moment for us to participate, especially for these clients we've worked with for 10, 20 plus years that are getting that new role, that new contract relocating. And so, you know, our existing client base will add 300 to $400 million net in new assets. We do have a handful of advisors that are joining our firm. And then we are in the middle of what will likely become a very large merger and acquisition for us in this calendar year as well. And so I would anticipate, as I mentioned, a, a year from now, we go from 50 employees to 100 employees and probably more than likely have a client base or an asset base that's uh, two to three times larger than it is today. That is just extraordinary, for sure. How do you expect that the business changes as a result of that kind of growth? It's tough to think about anything but positive. Everything that we have that kind of growth, as long as we're thoughtful, of course, the, the first thing I get to do is I get to expand my teams. We have a scalable business. And what I mean by that is, is behind the scenes, as we're delivering advice to our clients, we break out our advice by teams. So I have an investment team, insurance, tax, banking and bill payment, estate. And as we continue to grow, I just continue to expand those teams. So if I'm taking our tax team from eight people to 12 people in a calendar year, that team's getting better. And that's going to impact the quality of the work that we provide for every one of our clients. I add four more or five more CFAs into our investment team. That team collectively gets better and so on. And so the ability to, to expand our teams and then immediately right after, expand the value proposition, reevaluate every service and opportunities to enhance the services is excellent. And then the ability to execute on it, you know, bringing in thoughtful leadership, you know, the ability for us to have leadership that we otherwise wouldn't have in place. One of the things that we're looking for people to bring into the organization probably in a 2020 would be 
somebody that would have oversight and responsibility for all collective advice, I mean, meaning that all they do, we have a person that's all they think about is what is the advice that we're delivering to all of our clients and how are we implementing that and executing that across all of our advice teams and the collaboration, the coordination that happens around that. And it's incredibly powerful. And then, of course, the opportunity to invest in our current people. Our current people are what got us here. I am, you know, personal and professional development, continuing to expand roles, creating opportunities for all of our existing people to accomplish everything that they want professionally and personally as along the way. And so that's the short list of the fun opportunities of what growth brings to the organization. But how about your personal life? How does such growth impact your ability to do more than just focus on the business? You know, for any employee of Norris Rock, it gives me the opportunity to take a step back and dream about what my role is going to be in the future and what's the opportunity for me to have maybe a bigger, better role in a bigger, better company. Rethink about my personal goals, my professional development, and then just rethink about what a day in the life looks like for me at the office and and externally. And I, I want the same thing for my employees. As the firm continues to grow, we've got 25 different roles within our organization. And then when that grows from 25 to 40 different roles within the organization, all having varying levels of expertise and services that are beyond financial services, we have an amazing culture. I've got amazing people. That's obviously, that's attractive for me in a day in the life. And it's attractive for our existing clients. Our clients can feel that. I want to continue to look for opportunities to be additive to that for myself selfishly, and then also for my people. That's exciting. You mentioned the term day in the life. What is a day in the life of Rob Nelson? What does it look like? (laughs) Changing and moving. I still today play a strong role with some of our most complicated clients, meaning that clients that I've worked with over the last 20, 25 years, playing a center role and having a number of partners in the relationship. So I don't know if I'll ever be able to shake that. I just, I, I feel that sense of responsibility to continue on that journey with clients that uh, are kind of really coming into fun success with their families and careers and all aspects of changes in life. And so for me, a day in life is working with clients, continuing to improve upon everything within the organization. I've got an amazing leadership group. So us continuing to focus on every week, I have three teams I'm talking to collectively about what's our opportunity for to, to, to improve the business and expand the services, expand what we're doing. Of course, what got us here as an organization was simply listening to our clients. Those first 25 years, it was just our clients continue to ask for something. We continue to deliver upon it. Now, as we move forward, I can see and feel the organization getting better every week. And I tend to jump into those different projects. We're in the middle of a couple of technology initiatives from an expansion of our CRM and some of our asset aggregation and some of our online services. So I'll jump into that, those meetings in a, in a day in the life. We're thinking about expanding our national footprint and adding two or three offices. So now I'm in those locations, meeting with some different partners and professionals along the way there. Industry conferences and continuing to have personal development and education is a forever thing. And I try to have at least 25 to 30% of my time on continuing to get smart, continuing to be industry aware. And, you know, that's, those are some of the quick things of how I spend a day in the life. But I, I have a couple of different hats and in, in depending on the week and what our priorities are and what we've got going on. But I like that aspect, too, of being able to uh, have some variation on a daily basis. What strikes me is that a large part of our listening audience are advisors that currently work in traditional brokerage firms and or are independent under an independent broker dealer umbrella. And what you're describing the day in your life is really the life of a true CEO that's able to think strategically, act strategically, and mostly have real control over the choices he makes and the things he does for his business. And those are things that 
a captive advisor certainly isn't able to do. It's a challenge. In the captive environment, it is challenging to think outside the box and to control elements of your own destiny. That was a driver for us. Again, I talked about my previous world, and there was a level of certainty. I had a strong level of certainty. I had a great, I had really great success with the previous broker dealer. I could see what my next 10 and 20 years look like, and I would have enjoyed it. There was elements of I, I knew the people, I knew what a day in life looked like, but I was missing elements of challenge. And the elements also of not being able to deliver everything that my clients were looking for was something that I struggled with. It was not only just about what we were delivering for our existing clients. It was also thinking about what our future clients' needs were. It actually lended itself to some of the pain points that I was imagining for the future. And as we took a step back and we were thinking about what do I want to be when I grow up, I continue to do that right now to this day, is what do I want to be when I grow up and what do I want us as an organization to look like? Now in in the independent space, I can dream. I can think about not only what's going to bring joy and how I can improve my clients' lives. That's ultimately for us why I feel this industry and this business is fulfilling for us is we can play a strong role in helping to improve our clients' lives, not just because of financial, it's, it's in all other elements. And that's what brings us joy. That's what makes us, gives us the gratitude to come into this every day is knowing that whatever my next client need is, traditional financial services or above and beyond, if it makes sense for us and it makes sense for our clients that we're going to deliver upon that. Yeah. And I think, you know, look, as a final point, because the truth is this is incredibly fascinating and I could talk for hours because your story is really intriguing. But I think what you're describing is the conundrum that most advisors have, whether they're an employee or they're not independent enough for their liking. They have to choose between the comfort and familiarity of the status quo. You say, I was making a nice living. I had status within the firm. I knew how to get things done. It was working for me. But I was weighing that comfort and familiarity against the pull of not being able to deliver for clients what you wanted to or what you felt that they deserved or needed And I guess ultimately that drive to do better for clients really won out over the comfort and familiarity. And it did require a risk. It did take a risk. And for me, I guess I I kept on coming back to is, is the current environment I'm in right now, is it the right environment for me to reach my potential and my client's potential? But let's just be selfish, my potential. Can I meet my potential within this organization? And then how does the current firm fit into reaching that potential on behalf of my clients and that responsibility that I have. And I just, for me, I felt like I I needed to make a change that was better for the future. I mean, you only have one shot at this life and sometimes you have to take a chance. And for me, it was one of those rare decisions where the grass is greener on the other side. You know, we've been taught that uh, that that's not the case, but just for us, the ability to just every day, I always tell my team, you don't like the way a statement looks, well, that's your fault because we built that statement. If we don't like the technology provider, then let's go find a different technology provider. If there's a new investment solution that's available, the ability for us to go and change that. It, it, basically, we have total control of what a day in the life looks like and actually the experience that we're delivering to our clients. And for us, that's incredibly empowering as we think about our future. Yeah. Rob, I can't thank you enough. As I said, this was fascinating. I hope that someday soon we can do an update and you'll be talking to us when you're at 5 billion or 10 billion, which sounds like is not that far away. So we certainly wish you much continued success and can't wait to hear more about the story. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed. I appreciate the time. Pleasure. 
As Rob said, often it comes down to choosing between the comfort and familiarity of the status quo or responding to the needs of your clients. And choosing the status quo was far riskier in his eyes. So for Rob and the team at Northrock, it was a shot worth taking, one that has certainly paid off for him many times over. In our next episode, we'll hear from the investor side of the table. Rich Gill, a partner at Wealth Partners Capital Group, an RIA investment group, will join us to discuss what makes an attractive acquisition target, what a good deal looks like, why M&A is so red hot, and much more. Please be sure to join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.